This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Wouldn't it be great if your life came with a user manual, so whenever you face difficulty or you wondered how best to deal with any challenges that life throws at you, you could just refer to it and problem solved. Unfortunately, life doesn't come with a user manual, and so sometimes navigating any of its challenges can make you feel unsure and stuck, be it a career change, a new relationship, a big move, or even becoming a parent. But an option to take to help is therapy. I've found speaking to a professional in the past beneficial and which helped me figure out what exactly it was that was causing my dilemmas and so how best to deal with them successfully. I mean, we're each a complex engine and therapy can be the closest thing to a guided tour of yourself, with none more convenient to do this than better help. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash TCE. That's betterhelp.com slash TCE. With Christmas looming up, and with it everyone descending on you for visits before you head off to visit others for parties or get-togethers, how would you like to help celebrate the festive season with some wonderful wines courtesy of the best wine club that's out there, Wine 52, and impress friends, family and dinner guests with an incredible cast of beautiful and unique wines that you won't find anywhere else. Sounds good, yeah? How about if you got some for free? Even better that, isn't it? All you need to do is go to www.wine52.com slash truecrime and simply cover the postage costs of £8.95 and you'll get three fabulous bottles delivered right to your door. I've been a member of Wine52 for a while now and I tell you what, I absolutely love it. They take time and care selecting the very best wines from a different region each time, each and every month. From the revered Bordeaux region to the spectacular vineyards of the Rhone Valley, from a zesty Sauvignon Blanc to a vibrant full-bodied Malbec, experience the wonderful world of wine with the UK's most exciting wine club. Best of all, with Wine 52, you have the choice of what you want. Perhaps like me, you're a red wine fan, and I've had some great ones sent me, I really have. Or perhaps you love white wine, or perhaps you want to mix it up some with a selection. It's your preference totally. Also included with your box are two tasty snacks to enjoy with your wine, as well as the fabulously named Glug magazine, which delves into the wine culture of each region wine is selected for you from. Great, eh? After you've received your free case, you'll join the monthly wine club, but with no minimum commitment. If you think it's not for you, you can pause or cancel your subscription anytime. So remember, that's www wine52wine52.com slash truecrime to claim your free case of delicious wine today. It's one treat you don't want to miss, so grab yourself this treat in time for Christmas.
Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the regular slice of tales of true crime that I source for you, sometimes unbelievable or horrific, often unfamiliar, but all true tales from all corners of the UK and Ireland. Bringing you these for my spare room in North Wales is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, the more popular member of the podcast, my beloved black and white menace, Pixie, is here with me as always, listen out for his little bell, and completing us are you, the wonderful enthusiasts without who the show isn't, simple as. I thank you as ever for joining me in the mog here today, which means the world as always does, and I do hope that as you have done, then the episode finds you and yours all good, all safe, and all well. So. Here we are with the penultimate tale of 2022 for the regular show, though of course I shall be reviewing the series before year's end, as well as bringing some more horrors over the holidays for Patreon subscribers. On the subject of Patreon, big thanks here head out to both the returning and new supporters of the show, with shoutouts for new friends Louise Squires, Jonathan Parker, Sandy Garrison, Joe Hornsby, Marianne and Teresa Gort plus Karen Critchley, Martha Schuette, and Alison Owen who have opted to annually support the show. Apologies if I've mispronounced anybody's name there. It's amazing of you to support folks, thank you so much, and it does mean as ever the world that you have. Now, like this kind lot, if you're fancying getting yourself a bit of extra enthusiast, and you fancy hearing some extra tales such as Bring Out the Gimps, The Evil Eyes of Loxton, Suffer the Little Children, or the latest tale that's out, Joyce's Story, to name just some of the full series worth of extra tales that there is available, then you can do so very quickly and easily. Just head over to Patreon and seek out the show there, you can't miss it, or I'll save you the bother of even doing that, because there's a link that will take you right to it each time around in the episode show notes, and you can be on it as quick as a flash, no messing whatsoever. A new bonus tale comes out each month, and the next one up, as I said before, will be some more horrors over the holidays. That's coming before the end of the year also. So, for the penultimate tale of Series 7, we're off back to the very early 1990s and over to Dublin, Ireland's capital city, to hear an account of a truly horrific crime, one that can be summed up best by the title I've given the episode. The episode contains details and descriptions of a crime and events that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst listening in. With that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast for the first part of a two-part tale that I've entitled A Moment of Madness. An hour before dawn crept across Dublin, on the morning of Saturday the 31st of August 1991, a cyclist left his home at the foothills of the Dublin mountains on his way to work, and was soon strenuously making his way against the incline of Rathfarnham's Mount Venus Road. The 5.30am start was not a new one for him, and the route one he had covered hundreds of times before, so he was pretty much zoned out. But as he reached the top of the hill, level with the entrance to Frank Kelly Park, the home of Ballyboden Wanderers Gaelic Football Club. Out of the corner of his eye, 
he noticed what he thought to be a tailor's dummy lying on the ground. Though he didn't stop to investigate any further and carried on to work. Convincing himself on the rest of the journey there that his mind was playing tricks on him. For it couldn't have been a body, it had to be a tailor's dummy, right? It's never a tailor's dummy though, is it? This playing on his mind then, by the time he'd reported the matter to police later that morning, a full-scale murder hunt was already underway. It had been launched shortly after 6.35am that morning, when another person travelling to work along Mount Venus Road, mechanic Aidan Cullen, had also spotted what he also at first took to be a mannequin lying on the ground, although he slowed his car down for a closer look. Realising that it was a body, and that the scene was covered in blood, he drove a further few hundred yards down to the Rathfarnham Golf Club, where he alerted two early morning golfers as to what he'd found, and with them following Cullen in their own vehicle, the three made their way back to Mount Venus Road, where the scene that met them on that quiet country road was one of pure horror. Lying on her back, naked and bloodied on gravel in the park gateway, was the body of a blonde-haired woman in her late twenties to early thirties. Even from a distance, it was apparent to all viewing that she had massive head injuries, possibly inflicted by the large red brick covered in blood and hair that lay close to the body, and scattered around the area, over a nearby wall, lay the woman's blood-stained clothing, navy blue trouser shorts, a beige and black blouse, underwear, belt, and other belongings. Whilst the two golfers remained at the scene, Aidan Cullen sped off to alert the Garda at nearby Talak Station, and only ten minutes later was back at the scene with uniformed officers in a patrol car. Attending Garda John Hammond and Brian McHale immediately set about preserving the scene as best as possibly could, having summoned superior officers for what was clearly a murder inquiry to be launched. At a swiftly arranged conference at Talak Guard Station, the investigation team was formed, a 40-strong unit consisting of officers from Talak and Rathfarnham stations, both of which comprised the Mike District and was augmented by Garda from the Divisional Task Force in Crumlin. Assistance was also sought from the Serious Crime Squad at Harcourt Square under the operational commands of Detective Chief Superintendent John Murphy and Detective Superintendent Tom Butler. Now, when a body is discovered in a house or an otherwise enclosed area, police will at least have some sort of clue as to the identity of the victim, and quite often also, the circumstances of the crime. For example, is it a frenzied attack? Is it the result of robbery? Etc. But when a naked body is discovered in a rural, open area, it can be one of the hardest categories of murder to solve, for the inquiry team are confronted with hurdles from the off, before being able to identify and narrow down any suspect pool, having to identify the victim, to learn about them, to discover the victim's last known movements, and all the while with the awareness that the body may have been transported several miles from where the murder was actually committed, and they may need to expand inquiries further afield. All actions which eat into the golden 24 hours following a murder that gives investigators their best chance of solving any case. 
These were all thoughts prevalent in the minds of the senior team of Garda that arrived at Mount Venus Road a short time later. With a large force of detectives and uniformed officers from Talacht and Rathfarnham stations, supported by a crew from the Technical Bureau to scientifically document the scene, set into work, first to identify the victim and to then start to track down her killer. As Senior Investigating Officer Superintendent Pat King ordered a check on any woman who had been reported as missing in the previous 24 hours, the scene was left intact and untouched, but photographically recorded, where the team noted features of the dead woman, including jewellery she still wore on both hands, a gold band on the ring finger of her left hand, and on the right ring finger, three silver rings intertwined with interwoven stones later discovered to be a typical design of a Russian wedding ring. They also took time to note the full extent of the head and facial injuries that the woman had received. Her face to the right side was severely mutilated, the result of several vicious blows from what appeared to be the murder weapon, a bloodied brick, that lay nearby. There were also signs that the body had been dragged for some distance, for a drag mark along the gravel was apparent at the head of the deceased and went on towards the entrance of the park, which was where investigators concluded that the major assault had taken place. Once this had been photographed in full, the woman's belongings were collected by Evidence Officer Detective Sergeant Brendan McArdle and sealed in evidence bags, alongside what was considered the murder weapon, a bloodstained red brick weighing some five and a half pounds. In the meantime, Whilst awaiting state pathologist Professor John Harbinger, Dr James Maloney was summoned to the scene, where at 7.30am he officially pronounced the woman dead and recorded the time of death. It was later that afternoon when Professor Harbison arrived at the scene, as he'd been tied up conducting a post-mortem in Balnamore in County Latrim, where Gardner had contacted him that morning. Whilst the unfortunate woman was then conveyed to the mortuary at James Connolly Memorial Hospital in Blanchardstown to await a full post-mortem by, by Professor Harbinger, police drafted and issued a description of the woman for publication in the Saturday evening newspapers, as well as a bulletin for RTE, appealing for anybody who may be able to help identify the woman to contact the incident room that had been set up at Talact, and given the essential details of her for description. 5 feet 5 inches tall, of medium build, auburn hair with blonde highlights, wedding band on her left hand, and a distinctive Russian ring of three interwoven silver rings on the ring finger of her right hand. The investigating team had decided from a very early stage that press and media would play an important part in the investigation due to their wide reach and were to be cooperated with fully. That afternoon, when Professor Harbison opened the plastic sheeting the body had been placed in and the bag removed from around the woman's head that had been placed there to preserve it, he immediately noticed a slight whiff of stale alcohol. The results of the post-mortem were to show the victim had some 18 separate wounds to the head and neck, inflicted with a five and a half pound brick and that made for disturbing recording. The woman's mouth and nose had been shattered and mutilated to an extent where they'd been practically destroyed. Both cheekbones had been broken, and the upper mandible had been struck with such force 
that it had become detached from the skull. Both eyes were blackened, and the rear of the head showed evidence that in part, the woman's head had been beaten off the ground. Abrasions on the buttocks and the knees showed that the woman had been dragged over rough ground for a distance, and bruising to the backs of her hands and wrists showed where she had in vain attempted to ward off the onslaught of blows, though she would have been unconscious for at least part of the attack. Although the woman had been found unclothed, and indeed had bruise into her inner left thigh and her genitalia, there was no evidence of rape or any attempted sexual assault. Horrifically though, there was evidence to suggest that the killer had driven over the woman, either when she was dead or certainly dying, a belief reinforced by oil marks on the body, plus severe pressure abrasions to the woman's left arm and muddied imprints of tyre marks to the front of the thighs. Now that's some catalogue of injury, isn't it? Professor Harbison's findings were that the fatal blows to the woman had been those inflicted with the brick, but most likely, death had been brought about as a result of her inhaling her own blood from the wounds inflicted. She had literally drowned in her own blood. Or beyond belief, that ain't. Officers had immediately, as soon as the body had been removed for post-mortem, begun to conduct the usual bare-bones basics of any murder investigation, and house-to-house inquiries in the Mount Venus area were underway, as well as the list of recently reported missing women that had been requested, being received and scrutinised. It revealed that on the previous day, the Friday, a total of 11 women in the general age group of the deceased woman had been reported missing in the Dublin area an unusually high number. Although a couple of names on the list were persons known to disappear periodically, there were several who had never been reported missing before, and each of these would have to be checked out individually, so Detective Superintendent McCarrick ordered two-person teams to follow up on each of these. Though these inquiries did lead to a number of the women on the list being found, the victim wasn't on it. But by the following day, the investigating team had a name for her. The last time Brian O'Toole had seen his 31-year-old wife, Patricia, was in the car park of the First National Building Society in Booterstown, in South Dublin, early in the afternoon of the previous day. The couple had an appointment with a representative of the accounts department of the Building Society for 1.30 that afternoon, and following this, Patricia and Brian walked back to her car a two-door white Peugeot 205 model, where they spoke for about 10 minutes before she was due back at her work, Consolidated Insurance Brokers, on Dublin's Mount Street, by 2.15. As he hoped to be out that afternoon to play golf, he asked Patricia what her plans for the evening were, and Patricia told him that there was a leaving due for one of her office co-workers in a pub just off Mount Street, Scruffy Murphy's, so she was going to stay on after work and attend that. Before they parted, he told Patricia that if she was having a few drinks that evening, that she shouldn't try and drive home, but instead should stay the night at one of her friend's houses. Patricia also mentioned that the following day, she'd intended visiting her sister, Anne Scannell, who lived in Baldoyle, which was a regular occurrence on a Saturday. She would normally spend the day with Anne and her husband Peter, before returning home at about 10pm. 
kissing her goodbye then, Brian watched as she got back into her Peugeot with a smile and sped off, having told her that she looked super. Following their lunchtime meeting, Brian had returned to the couple's house at Watson Avenue in Killiney, and at 3pm that afternoon, he was collected by a friend, where the pair then drove to Delgany Golf Club, their favoured course, but were unable to get a game there. After continuing on to Greystones, there they found a competition already underway, and though they did manage to get a game at a third club, Blaine Row, they abandoned it after playing just three holes because of the long delays on each tee. They were refunded their money and had a drink in the clubhouse there before heading on to a Kilney pub called The Graduate. They stayed here until about 8.45pm when Brian got a lift home and then got ready for work as a bouncer at Buck Whaley's nightclub on Leeson Street, where he started at 10.45pm and worked on until past 6am the following morning before returning home. There was no sign of Patricia at home and her car wasn't there, and so he thought she must have stayed out with friends after the leaving do. He was out of the house again by 9am and back once again to Blaine Road to play golf, this time successfully before returning home at 4.15pm and having a couple of hours sleep ahead of working once again at the club that evening. When he returned home by 6am on the Sunday, however, he was somewhat surprised and more than a bit concerned to find that Patricia's car was still not in the driveway, but thinking that she must have stayed at her sister's and with 6am being too early to call them to check, it was 10am that Sunday before he got in touch with his in-laws, but who told him they hadn't seen Patricia all weekend. He then rang some of Patricia's work colleagues who she'd been out with on the Friday, but they gave him very much the same answer. They hadn't seen her since the leaving party that previous Friday. They did tell Brian that Patricia had had a fair amount to drink that evening, knocking back Budweiser and wine over a few hours and several pubs. And one couple he spoke to, Evelyn and Gary Cooper, told him that they'd last seen her when she'd left them at the Pronto Grill restaurant in Ranlar at around 1.30am that Saturday morning, ostensibly to drive home. Around the same time Brian O'Toole was calling around everywhere, the Garda switchboard at Harcourt Square received a call that a white car had been abandoned at Dolphin Road in Inchicore in the Drimna area, where it had first been noticed parked the previous morning. The operator passed on details of the call-out for patrols, and it was a shout picked up by two Sundrive Road officers, Golf Bravo 1 Patrol. Guarders Annette Murtagh and Stephen O'Mahony arrived at Dolphin Road at 11.15am to find the car in question was a white Peugeot 205, registration number 88D13968 but though it was parked somewhat haphazardly, there were no obvious signs of damage or a break into it. A check of the vehicle's index number showed that it wasn't on the suspect or stolen list either, and that it was registered to one Patricia Madden, who lived in Watson Avenue in Killiney, Madden being Patricia's maiden name. Back in the aforementioned Killiney, Brian O'Toole was still calling around friends of his wife, listening to the 11am news in the background, when he heard about the discovery of a woman's body the previous day in Rathfarnham. 
Despite his anxiety over the whereabouts of Patricia, he was initially confident when he heard the physical description of the murdered woman that it was not her. Although this changed enough when he heard the description of a distinct wedding ring that the woman had been wearing for him to contact the Garda at Cabin Tealy. Here, he explained to Garda James Dillier about the last time he'd seen his wife, the Friday, and after giving details of her and her vehicle, a check revealed that this was the car that the crew from Sundrive Road Station had just followed up on as being abandoned. When he was told about the car being discovered, Brian O'Toole officially reported his wife as a missing person. Suspecting that Patricia was sadly the woman found murdered, Brian was summoned to Cabin Tealy Station complete with photographs of his wife. As one of the senior murder investigators, Detective Sergeant Kevin Tunney made his way from the incident room at Talak to Liaise. Whilst at the station, Brian gave a statement that was to last four and a half hours, punctuated by him calling home several times to see if Patricia had arrived back there, but to no avail. Meanwhile, the officers who'd attended the reported abandoned Peugeot now heard via police radio that the vehicle's owner had been reported as missing and immediately headed back to Dolphin Road from the mugging that they'd been summoned away from the car to attend, now to effect entry and perform a thorough visual inspection of the car's interior. Upon doing so, they found two pairs of shoes and a blue coat in the passenger footwell of the vehicle, alongside a handbag containing documentation, a purse, credit cards and checkbook in the name of Patricia Madden and Patricia O'Toole, proving beyond doubt that this was Patricia's car. The passenger door was unlocked, though there were no sign of the ignition keys, and the officers noticed heavy blood stain into the inside panel of the driver's door, with more stain invisible around the outside handle of the passenger door, as well as on the rear of the car around the bootlock. Later forensic examination of the vehicle soon provided a vital clue that would be able to rule out any suspect that arose in the investigation, for on the steering wheel of the car was a palm print impression that had been left in blood. A comparison was made with Patricia's and was found not to match it, so it could only have been left by a killer. On the centre of the passenger door, six splashes of blood were found formed, all in a downward splashing direction, alongside smears and specks of blood that were featured more heavily on the rear inner door of the hatchback, whilst the front passenger seat belt was found to be heavily bloodstained and a clump of hair was also removed from the central pillar. By that Sunday afternoon though, with Detective Sergeant Tunney certain that they'd identified the murder victim, he had brought Brian O'Toole to Talak Station where Brian was then shown the two rings that had been taken from the murdered woman. Though he couldn't be certain, he said that the plain wedding band was similar to Patricia's, but the Russian-style ring he could be much more sure of, as it was one he'd bought for Patricia five years before at a sale on Grafton Street. Brian recalled later, When our wedding ring dropped on the table, it was as if my whole life ended. Formal identification of the body was made at 4.15pm at the mortuary at Blanchardstown Hospital by Patricia's brother-in-law, Peter. 
whilst Brian was also to formally identify his wife too later that evening in the morgue, once the body had been prepared for viewing. Such was the degree of violence that had been used against her, it was necessary for Patricia's dental records to be summoned and used for assistance in the identification. Brian said later, I went into the morgue prepared for it to be very bad, but it was worse than I could have ever imagined. I walked outside and tried to get sick, but I couldn't. Horror beyond belief, eh? Patricia O'Toole, or Trisha as she was known to her friends, was what you could class as a striking looking woman. The good looks and quick wit meant she was frequently the centre of attention on many occasions, and her friends and colleagues described her as a very popular and well-liked person, full of life and good fun. She'd been born on the 12th of April 1959, the youngest daughter to Pauline and Patrick Madden, and had a happy upbringing with her elder sister Anne on Brookstone Road in Baldoyle in County Dublin. At school, St Mary's Convent in Baldoyle, she was an exceptionally bright and able pupil, and by her leaving in 1976, she had gained four honours. After secondary school, she took up a secretarial course at Dublin's Rose College on Charlemont Street, and worked at a number of office jobs for the next few years including a year working as a typist for Frank Glennon Insurance Brokers in Leeson Street, before in the early 1980s she went to Greece to work for a year. Soon after she returned, she took up a job at Consolidated Insurance Brokers in Mount Street in the Pensions Department, and by later that year, 1984, she had met Brian O'Toole, a marketing salesman, and had begun a relationship with him the couple buying the house in Killiney in 1986. On the 16th of August 1990, they had married at Henslaw Civic Centre in London in a private ceremony attended by the couple's families and close friends. Patricia was a popular outgoing woman with a wide and varied circle of friends and shared a love of sport and fitness with her husband, for whilst Brian was a member of Seapoint Rugby Club in Killiney, a former member of Wanderers and a keen golfer, Patricia was a keep-fit enthusiast who exercised regularly, working out several times a week at the Friarsland Perfect Fitness Club in Klonski to keep herself in good shape, and who trained the under-18 team at Seapoint Rugby Club near her home, as well as being a keen runner who competed in several half-marathons. In March 1991, She'd completed a physical training course at Thomond College in Limerick for a national certificate in aerobics exercise and fitness instruction, and shortly before her murder, she had discussed with colleagues at work the possibility of her and Brian moving out to Spain, as he had had a job offer out there, and where she hoped to put her fitness instructor's qualification to use. Sadly, only a few days after her murder, the glowing results from her fitness diploma exam came through the post, results that meant it would have been a career she would have excelled in. So, all of the Saturday and mostly Sunday had been taken up with trying to identify the murdered woman, and now, with a sadly positive identification and the discovery of Patricia's car, the murder hunt was beginning to make headway, and Patricia's final movements were soon established. 
After work on the evening of Friday the 30th of August, Patricia, as she told Brian, had joined several of her friends and colleagues for leaving drinks for another colleague heading off to Pastures New for a party at Scruffy Murphy's pub, where, after arriving just after 5pm, the group remained drinking together until 10.30. Bar manager Pat Dunn recalled, Patricia was in great form. She was always a very happy girl. We had a bit of joking and crack when she came up to the bar for drinks. They left at about 10.30pm. They were having a good time, but they were not drunk. When the do came to an end at Scruffy Murphy's, Patricia, in excellent spirits throughout the evening by all accounts, joined friends for food at Abracababra, fabulous name for a restaurant that, isn't it, on Baggett Street, before the group then headed out of the city centre to the inner suburb of Ranlar and into Russell's pub there. Later, because it's a busy pub and it was packed on a Friday night, they moved on to O'Brien's bar, where they remained until 12.30am, when Patricia and the remaining friends she was with, Evelyn and Gary Cooper, decided to go to the Pronto Grill in Ranla Village for food, and where Patricia, who'd been on the Budweiser during the evening, now moved on to the white wine. Staff at the grill were anxious to give last orders and clear up for the evening, and so, at 1.30am, them being the last customers, they were on their way out, walking along Elm Park Avenue and Ranla Road. There, Patricia said goodnight to her friends and headed towards her car, which was parked some 150 yards away, near Russell's pub by the Triangle in the centre of Ranla. Though they'd offered to walk her to her car, she declined, saying that she would be fine, it wasn't far away, and mentioning something about going to Sachs Hotel in Donnybrook, but was never to arrive there. Off she set, wobbling slightly due to the amount of drink she'd had that evening. Later analysis of her blood showed she'd had 150 milligrams of alcohol per 100 milliliters, putting her three times over the drink driving limit. This was the last time Patricia was seen alive by anybody who knew her. For five hours later, her body was found on Mount Venus Road in the foothills of the Dublin Mountains. The fact that the garden now knew Patricia's movements over the Friday evening helped them immensely, and the discovery of her car now meant the focus of inquiry shifted to Drimnar, for although her body was found some nine miles away, it was theorised that Patricia's killer was someone she'd picked up in that area. She was known to give lifts to pretty much anyone, even the most casual of acquaintances, and the killer had returned the car back there because he was from that area. Because there was no evidence of the car being broken into and nothing had been taken from her handbag, which was discovered in the car, Garda discarded theft as a possible motive, although her car keys were missing. On the Monday, Garda circulated photographs of Patricia to the press with an appeal for anyone who had sighted her in the early hours of that Saturday morning to get in touch with them, and the following day, the Talak incident room had arranged for Garda Noreen McBrien, who bore a resemblance to Patricia, to dress in similar clothing to that Patricia had been wearing. A sleeveless black top with cream markings, black knee-length shorts and a brown belt with a large gold buckle. Garda McBrien also wore a blonde wig, 
although it was pointed out that Patricia's hair was slightly longer and darker in colour, and paraded for press photographers and television cameras in a reconstruction, hoping that the image would jog someone's memory. Superintendent Pat King told press, We are determined to find whoever did this to that lovely girl. She really was beautiful looking. I know people have seen her photograph in the papers, but we have more pictures of her here, and she looks just like a Miss Island in them. That same evening, the 3rd of September, Patricia's body was removed to St. Peter and Paul's Church in Baldoyle, with a funeral mass held the following day. A large gathering attended her funeral, offering their sympathies to Patricia's husband Brian, her widowed father Paddy Madden, for Patricia's mother Pauline had died in 1989, her sister Anne Scannell, and other family members. Father Stan Soph, in his homily, described Patricia's death as a monstrous act and prayed that God would give her friends and family strength during this real-life drama we are living through. During his sermon, he also said that for young men and boys, adoration of the Blessed Virgin would help give them respect for all women. During the reading, Anne cried out in grief-stricken anguish, Who killed my sister? And though comforted after she'd cried out, she went on, No, I don't give a damn. Murderers. Fighting back tears, Brian O'Toole was comforted by friends and family, and he, Patricia's broken-hearted father Patrick, and Anne had to be supported as they left the seaside chapel, ahead of Patricia's white oak coffin, which was covered in floral tributes, including a simple arrangement of roses and carnations, with the inscription, from your loving husband Brian, before she was interred at St. Fintan's Cemetery in Sutton. Meanwhile, the grieving family of Patricia's husband Brian told how they were still trying to come to terms with the horror of the last few days. The father-in-law, John O'Toole, told reporters at his home in Killancy in County Dublin, We are all very, very upset. It's a deeply distressing time for all of us. My wife is too upset to see anyone at the moment. It's just devastating to think we won't see Patricia with her blonde flowing hair again. It's almost too much to think about what we've all lost. I can't describe what it's like for us at the moment and the kind of pain we're going through. It's always unimaginable, really is. By now, the appeal for information from people who may have seen a white car in the Drimna area in the early hours of that Saturday morning had begun to pay dividends. With a caller telling Garda that he had stopped his car around 1.45am on the 31st of August, outside Windsor Motors on the South Circular Road in the Dolphins Barn area to drop off a friend. And as he had, a small white car, driven somewhat erratically by a blonde-haired woman who was alone, had pulled alongside them and asked them directions to Inchicore. When they directed her as to where to go, she had driven off, veering all over the road. After being shown photographs of the murdered woman, they identified Patricia as being the driver. The next sighting was made shortly after this on Golden Bridge Avenue in Inchicore, at the junction where it meets Southern Cross Avenue and Stevens Road. Stephen O'Byrne and Colm Nolan were waiting at the junction 
when a lone female driver stopped and asked O'Byrne directions to number 56 Connolly Avenue. Though he directed her from there, instead of following the route he gave her, she continued to drive up Southern Cross Avenue towards the Grand Canal. Two others, Conor O'Leary and Joe Fitzgerald, were then cycling home at about 2.30am along Sewer Road towards Kilmainham, when a small white car came out of Golden Bridge Avenue and pulled up alongside them. They noticed that the driver, a female, was alone and that she seemed to be upset as she asked them directions to Connolly Avenue, which they also directed her to and told her that she was very near to it. Both were of the opinion as she drove off that Patricia, who they identified from photographs produced to them, was very drunk and unfit to drive. Indeed, the car was veering all over the road, and they noticed it stop again further up Suya Road as a red Fiat 127 had pulled alongside it. The driver of this vehicle, John Collot, later told detectives he had stopped to complain to the driver of the white car about her dangerous and erratic driving, and echoed what the previous witnesses had said, that she appeared upset and had asked directions to Connolly Avenue. He had explained to her that it was back up Golden Bridge Avenue, a mere few hundred yards away, and that if she would follow him, he was heading in the same general direction. However, when he turned right onto Connolly Avenue, he noticed the white Peugeot was no longer behind him, having turned off onto one of the other streets. Although he did a U-turn and retraced his journey looking for it, concerned that the woman may injure herself or someone else, he couldn't find her, and so continued on home. He too was later to identify Patricia as the driver of the Peugeot when he was shown a photograph of her. So, that's several people who have seen Patricia driving a car up to an hour after her friends had last seen her when she left the grill, around a relatively geographically small area of Dublin. There was another sighting of her, this time between 3.45 and 4am, and again on Sweer Road, and which was to be the key sighting, but it was to be another few days before the investigating team would discover who made it. Now detectives believe that the reason Patricia O'Toole was looking for Connolly Street in the early hours of that Saturday was that an old boyfriend of hers, Christy Hochter, lived there. He'd first met her 13 years before, and they'd enjoyed an on-off relationship for a number of years, but when he was spoken to later, he told police that he'd not seen her since September of the previous year. He was keen to stress that there'd been no arrangement between them for her to go to his house that evening, and that had she made it there, he would have heard her knocking as he was a light sleeper. Why she decided to call on him that night, no one can know, though possibly it is due to the amount of alcohol that she'd consumed that evening. There's nothing to suggest that Patricia and Christie were involved in an affair. The progress of the murder inquiry was being scrutinised by the media and the investigating team were, as had been decided from the off, using them to appeal regularly for information. The case was front page news and any new possible angle was pursued by the press, meaning her final hours were examined in minute detail on radio and television. 
and with unhelpful and lurid suggestions from that she was on her way to a secret lovers when she was abducted and killed, to the O'Tools being in financial difficulty, whatever that has to do with it. Brian dismissed all of these, and the distraught husband, struggling to come to terms with the death of his wife, told reporters only days after the murder, Whoever killed Patricia, and if they're caught and convicted, will someday under any legal system walk out, be it 10, 20 or 30 years. Patricia will never walk back, her sentence is permanent. She was in the wrong place at the wrong time, five minutes later and she'd be alive today. The hardest thing for me is to wake up in the morning and face another day when she isn't here. On the 8th of September, the Sunday World newspaper ran a front page piece about the murder with a full colour photograph of Patricia in which it posed the question that police by then already suspected. Had Patricia asked a killer for directions? But by Monday the 9th of September, 10 days after the murder, house-to-house -house inquiries referenced the murder had moved to the Ballyferma area. It was here, at 9.45pm that evening, that two detectives from the Talat Incident Room, John Maunsell and Thomas Flynn, were approached by two men and were informed by them that they held vital information about the murder in the Dublin Mountains. It was the vital breakthrough that detectives had been looking for over the previous 10 days, and which I shall continue telling you about in the second part of A Moment of Madness, because that is an ideal place to leave it for this time around. As I've come to record it, it's going to run massively long and it's not a tale to scrimp on, so it's better breaking it up into two parts. It's much more workable and manageable. And yes, it's an, it's an unbelievable story. So I shall save all my thoughts and feedback for the second part of it. And with that, I shall shut up and wrap up here and crack on finishing the second part. It is all completely written, but I need to fine tune and tweak it a little bit. So, so I'll get down to that right now. I thank you all very kindly for joining me in the peaks today. And all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast. Wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, stay safe, and goodbye for now.